Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This podcast features Charles C. Mann at St. Paul Public Library, Merriam Park. New York Times bestselling historian Charles C. Mann is perhaps best known for his groundbreaking 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus. As the name suggests, 1491 challenges and corrects long-held assumptions about the indigenous peoples who populated the New World before European colonization. It won the prestigious National Academy's Best Book Award. Mann's meticulously researched follow-up, 1493, uncovering the New World Columbus created, ranges across continents and centuries to explain how the world we inhabit came to be. Changing gears, his newest project, The Wizard and the Prophet, tells a remarkable story of two influential yet little-known 20th century scientists who laid the groundwork for the modern environmentalism movement. In a rave review, Sierra called it an elegant written, devoted testimonial to the art of the possible. In addition to his book-length scholarship, Mann is also a prolific correspondent and columnist for publications ranging from Smithsonian to Fortune to Vanity Fair. Thank you. How are we doing? <laughs> no, actually I meant, how are we homo sapiens? How are these guys doing? And, you know, there's a, I'm a science journalist and I spend a lot of time asking that to researchers and typically what they'll do is they'll email you something like this. Well, they say, how are we doing? They'll take some value of human well-being, global life expectancy, global income, global population. And after a while you notice that they all look the same. They, they skitter along at a low level for centuries or even millennia and then rocket up in the 19th or 20th centuries. Or if you ask, how are we doing, they'll talk about some measure of human consumption, you know, consumption of energy, consumption of steel, consumption of phosphorus. And the graphs also look the same. They kind of skitter along at a low level for centuries or even thousands of years, and then rocket up in the 19th and 20th century. And if you're a student taking Biology 101 and you see a graph like that, you, your teacher will tell you there's a word for it. It's that one, outbreak. An outbreak is when a species or populations escapes its normal bounds, the bounds set by natural selection. Normally, pests, pathogens, lack of resources keep species within roughly defined limits. But every now and then, a species escapes its um, natural bounds. And we all know about these things when we learn about them again in history. You have zebra mussels in the Great Lakes. You have crown of starfish in the Indian Ocean, brown tree snakes in Guam, spruce bugworm in British uh, Columbia. Populations rocket up a thousandfold, a millionfold, but there's always an end, and it's always bad. The outbreak ends always badly. Outbreaks in nature don't end well. 
So if you're a biologist and you look at the human story compared to these stories, it's what happens when you put two protozoa like this into a petri dish. They eat and reproduce and eat and reproduce and fill up this whole picture in a very graphic way until they hit the edge of the petri dish, at which point they either drown in their own wastes or starve from lack of resources or both. The outbreak ends badly. And so for biologists, when they come and they ask us what we're going to do, the answer is obvious. It's an outbreak. It's going to end badly unless somehow we're special that we have certain possibilities that are not available to others, other species. Now, one way to talk about the question facing us in the next 50 years or so is, are we special? Is there some reason to believe that we are different from the crowns of thorn starfish, from the um, protozoa in the petri dish, or what have you? And let's define that question a little bit more. Here we have the global population, and what we see is that around 2050, there's going to be almost 10 billion people in the world. But even more important, those people are going to be affluent. More and more of those people are going to be, and no matter how you do it, there's tons of studies about this. It says that people have gotten richer and richer. So there's going to be 10 billion affluent people in the world, and they're going to be facing four great challenges if we're going to avoid hitting the edge of the Petri dish. Getting food to everybody, getting water to everybody, getting energy to everybody, and avoiding the worst impacts of, of climate change. And as I said, I'm a science journalist. I've been asking questions about how we're going to do this to scientists, researchers, politicians, activists for many years. And after a while, I realized that their answers fell into what I thought of as two broad categories, each associated with a dead person nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> I call them wizards and prophets. Now, there's, I actually asked a philosopher for what I should call them, and they gave me a German word that was, had about 30 letters in it. So I'm sparing you that and just saying, I'm going to call them wizards and prophets, even though I know that's not the proper psych uh, philosophical term. And the first answer is associated with this guy, Norman Borlaug. I'm kind of curious how many people here in the Midwest, because he's a Midwesterner, have heard of him. Whoa. <laughs> I have to tell you that if I said this, when I ask this question in a place like California or New York, I do not get that answer. Um, you guys are not Americans. <laughs> I, I kind of feel silly. The next couple slides tell you who he is. Um, so, you know, he grew up poor in um, Iowa. This is his literal one-room schoolhouse. He didn't think he was very smart. And so he went to college hoping to get uh, athletic um, training so that he could become a, a baseball player, a professional wrestler, or something like this. He wasn't good enough, and he graduated with a degree in forestry um, at the beginning, right at the beginning of the Great Depression, and he kind of took one look around and, and did what a lot of um, college students did in 2008. He went right back to school and went to uh, graduate school. Um, here in the University of uh, Minnesota, he kind of escaped with a, a degree in plant pathology by uh, one of the great um, scientists of the 20th century, a guy from Ellen Stakeman was his, uh, and Stakeman saw something in him and asked him to work on this crazy project in Mexico, where Stakeman and a small number of other scientists were supposed to raise, uh, to find out a way to raise corn yields and wheat yields in uh, Mexico. And you have to understand that when this was taking place, which is in the mid-1940s, Mexico was poor in a way that's very difficult for most of us living as we do to imagine. <coughs> Two out of three people in the country at some point during the year didn't get enough to eat. 
and the maize, corn, which was the uh, national staple in Mexico then and still is, the, the national harvest was going down. Even though they were planting more and more acreage of, of corn, the amount that they were getting was going down, and things are really quite desperate. And so their goal was to raise the yields, and I have to tell you, this was a completely ludicrous idea. Borlaug was put in charge of the wheat program. He was the sole member of the wheat program, and this is his laboratory. Um, and I should say that this is uh, not actually this nice building here, this shed here, okay? And Borlaug didn't speak Spanish. He had never been outside the country. Um, he had never bred plants. He had never worked with wheat. And worse, this is in the mid-1940s. He was trying to breed wheat, which we now know has a genome rough, um, roughly three um, um, times as complicated as the human genome, to in a time when they, nobody knew what DNA was. Nobody knew what a gene was. So he was really, really unequipped. He had no budget. He didn't have a microscope. He had like a pair of tweezers, and uh, that, that was it. But what he did have was an amazing capacity um, for, for hard work. And despite the lack of actually any kind of um, support whatsoever, he came up with, he was a principal figure in coming up with what is now called the Green Revolution Package which is the combination of high-yielding seeds, high-intensity fertilizer, and irrigation that doubled or even tripled or quadrupled grain yields across the world. The first happened in Mexico. And you can see things sort of um, going along. And then in the, um, right here somewhere, things take off. And suddenly, Mexican wheat farmers are able to produce four times as much as they had. The same techniques were brought here into the Middle West, and this is when the American Middle West really becomes a grain powerhouse. The Green Revolution comes here and blows things up, then they take it to India. And one of the great things I'm now going to assume, because I'm talking to sophisticates in Minnesota and not these cultural primitives in Manhattan, is that you guys know that this is not a good-looking wheat field. <laughs> yeah, it's corn. Nope, that's wheat. Nope. That, that is wheat, and that's in, that's in India, and it's a famous photograph taken by Margaret Burke White. And that is, the, that is how um, they planted it, because stem rust, which is a, the main disease of wheat, was so um, common and crippling in those days, and they had so little water, that they tried to plant it extremely sparsely in the um, relatively vain hope that, it, um, that the stem rust wouldn't spread. In comes the uh, Green Revolution, and the same thing happens in developing countries. And I think you guys probably know better than most people the impact this had um, on, on the world. And the best way, unfortunately, you can show it is these kind of boring charts. Um, and this is the average daily caloric intake by various regions of the world and the world itself. And, you know, the USDA says that these are roughly the levels needed by average, um, lead, you know, moderately active men and women. And what all of this is telling you is that sometime in the 1980s, the average person on Earth had enough to eat all year round. And as far as we know, this is the first time this is true in all of known history. That, you know, in, a li in the lifetime of many of the people in this room, we have achieved something that has never been true before. We've lived, we're living in an entirely different world. Famines, the kind of famines you had where people just simply ran out of food because they didn't produce enough, 
have ended. The only kinds of famines that now exist are because of war or, or social un unrest. And this has been the case. And it's something that really should be taught in every high school, in every college. It's a profoundly important part of the world that we live in today. And this had a huge impact on scientists and researchers of all sort because they, they, I can't tell you the number of times that researchers have said to me, I want to do for X what Borlaug did for wheat. That is, to take science and technology, properly apply them, and let you produce your way out of our problems. We can be smart, we can make more, and that way everyone can win. Now, the problem is there's nothing that's really good that happens without its bad side. And you can see the bad side from the uh, Green Revolution here. This is a photograph of part of the uh, Gulf of Mexico. Um, and what that is is an enormous bloom of algae and other aquatic plants. Something on the order of 40% of that fertilizer applied for this green revolution doesn't go into the, um, into the plants. It goes into water. Um, it ends up here. Water that, you know, fertilizer in water is still fertilizer. It promotes this enormous uh, growth. They fall down to the um, bottom where they're consumed by microorganisms. It's a notion of breakfast coming down there. The microorganisms eat and multiply and eat and multiply and they do so much that they suck the oxygen out of the water from the respiration and you create these large coastal dead zones. The one in the Gulf of Mexico last year was about 8,000 square miles, much, much larger one in the Bay of Bengal, which is about 21,000 um, square miles. And these are areas where there's simply not enough water in there for most aquatic life. Similarly, we've had a lot of really terrible irrigation. Um, this is a photograph um, cut through by the wonderful photographer Jim Richardson when he and I were in, in Syria um, a few years ago when you were actually could go to Syria without getting killed. And uh, the, for Syria, as you may remember from going to church, is part of the Fertile Crescent. A lot of it is not so fertile anymore because when they had the irrigation, the water evaporated, leaving behind the salts in the water, and it's poisoned the soil. And this is one of the contributors to the social unrest in um, Syria. Much, of the fertile, much too much of the Fertile Crescent is not as uh, fertile as it was due to the irrigation. Um, problems. And here, finally, is probably the most important thing that uh, the downside of all this. And this is the great Mexican, this is a, a mural from the great Mexican um, mural painter uh, Diego Rivera. And it shows, um, you know, sort of this pale skinned guy up here who's taking it easy and he's the owner of the plantation. And these darker skinned people are working um, in these tough conditions. And there's the cops enforcing the whole thing. And in places like Mexico in the 1950s or much of the world in, where um, what happened to smallholders when they were suddenly able to produce four times as much corn or rice or, or wheat from their land is their land became four times as valuable. It became worth stealing. And that's just what happened all over the world. Huge numbers of people were pushed off the land, often with the active um, you know, uh, help of, of, of governments. And you create these enormous megacities um, in, the, in the global south. One of the most you know, memorable afternoons I've ever spent was flying in a helicopter with this uh, photographer over Mexico City. Um, you know, which has something on the order of 26 million people in it. Um, and a huge percentage of those people were smallholders, people in small farms who were pushed off um, the land with the active um, help of the, of the, of the Mexican uh, government. And so you got these problems that came. And that's part of the reason that um, many people turned to answer number two. 
And I'm kind of curious, because you unnerved me with your answer about Norman Borlaug. <laughs> this guy's truly obscure. I'm sort of hoping some of you don't know who he is. Um, is that right? You don't know who this guy is? OK, his is William Vogt. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, I see. Oh, you cheated. Um, <laughs> authors are not used to speaking to people who've read their book. This is, uh <laughs> so here is Vogt. He also grew up poor. Um, he grew up, um, ended up with a, uh, he had polio, he ended up with a degree in French literature at the height of the Great Depression, that, uh, right before the Great Depression, that was about as useful then as it is now, and um, what he was, a, but he was also became kind of a, he was an avid um, and, in fact, obsessed bird watcher and uh, ornithologist friends got him a job, um, and I hope you can see that's a map of Peru, and there's this current, um, the Humboldt Current, um, that goes along there. It's one of the richest fisheries um, in the world. There's zillions of these uh, fish that are called anchovetas. They're r relatives of the, of the anchovy. Um, and then there's these 39 islands off the coast, which uh, my, my friend, the cartographer, has helpfully illustrated um, there with these little birds. And birds have been roosting there for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, these very big seabirds. Um, and they have been doing what uh, seabirds normally do, which as far as I can tell is uh, three activities, eating, making little seabirds, and pooping. And um, because it doesn't rain very much there, the poop has built up into these absolute mountains of excrement. And this was the world when it was, uh, uh, when it was the Europeans discovered the properties of this, actually native people had known this for a long time, it became the world's first high intensity fertilizer and bags of Peruvian guano went all over the world, it became an important industry to the Peruvian government which nationalized the um, islands and they brought in thousands of Chinese slaves to work under absolutely horrible conditions uh, to mine this and it was very important to keep this going. And in the 1920s and 30s, the supply of guano, that's what it's called, bird excrement, it's called guano, um, started, and they wanted to bring in an ornithologist to, uh, as Vote put it, augment the increment of excrement. <laughs> and um, so they were supposed to go down there and show how you could increase the supply of excrement. So this is wh where he went, this is what it looks like, I can say, um, with beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is the worst place I've ever been. Um, there's absolutely nothing that lives on these islands other than birds and the many, many, many biting insects that like birds and also turn out uh, to like people. Um, there's not a speck of green on these islands. There's nothing but uh, guano, birds and, birds and bugs. Oh, I forgot to mention it's often about 110 degrees. Um, this was Vogt's laboratory. Um, you can imagine how, uh, <laughs> you know, the conditions there. Um, and then this isn't really relevant, but I, I, I see this is pictures of, this is his poor wife, um, who he dragged there for three years. Um, and um, th those aren't people. Those are the other inhabitants of the island. Um, and, uh, but despite the, like, he was a tremendously hard worker like Borlaug, and he made um, a very important uh, scientific discovery. Um, he was the first person to really grasp that there is this oscillation of El Nino and La Nina that we all know about now, but this was news to um, people in the 30s, and he drove, derived an important lesson from that. As you can see, when you have an El Nino, you can see that that's the, you can see that's the coast of South America, I hope, okay. That, that red there is warm water. The water, which is normally cold, becomes warm. The anchovetas, which are the fish that all the birds eat, 
um, don't like warm water. And so when this happens, they swim hundreds of miles away from the coast because they want you know, water that's more to, um, that they like more, and it's too far for the birds to go chasing after them. And so the anchoveta population within reach of the birds regularly drops. And this sets a limit on the number of birds you can have. You can artificially increase that limit for a short period of time, but then the crash will be much, uh, much worse. And Vogt realized there are these natural cycles, these natural processes that have limits that we transgress to our peril. And from this, he derived the idea of carrying capacity. And this is the foundational insight of the environmental movement. It's the most important. It's the idea that there's these limits set by nature, and if you exceed them, things get bad very quickly. And he wrote in 1948 this book here, which is the first modern we're all going to hell book. <laughs> and um, so if you read Al Gore's books or The Population Bomb or any of these big, big books that came after, they all stem from this guy um, here. And this is the, you know, the fundamental insight of today's world-spanning global environmental movement that there's these limits. And it comes from this guy um, in Peru. And there's many, many names for these limits. You see them in the ecological literature, just randomly planetary boundaries, ecological limits, ecological overshoot, the number of Earths that we use. They all mean the same thing, that the world is governed by these fundamental ecological processes with limits that we transgress to our peril. And his point is use less, conserve, otherwise everybody is going to lose. Now, this too has its downside. And the biggest one is, sh is shown here, and that was that spurred by this, and spurred by the need, you know, to perceive need to reduce human population and to reduce um, consumption, the world embarked on a massive anti-population uh, campaign in the 1970s and went right through to the beginning of the uh, 20, 21st century. And it was a catastrophic failure. There were tens of millions of forced abortions, tens of millions of forced sterilizations. It went, you know, in China, in India, in Latin America, in Egypt, and there was horrible um, human rights uh, uh, abuses of, of every sort. And even worse, th this whole thing was done, and it wasn't particularly um, effective. If you over there on the left is India's um, birth rate and the period when they had the population control, when you know where literally you could not send your kids to school in many places unless you agreed to be sterilized. Um, I mean, it was tremendously coercive. Um, you had, you know, you see almost no effect um, from, from this thing happening. The birth rate dropped a tiny bit. And then China had this one-child policy where if you had a second child, you were forced to abort it in many places. And so this led, people wanted boy children so that they would um, immediately abort girl children. It was just awful. And again, in China, this happened and it just didn't have um, very much impact. It's a total nightmare where you're having all this negative impact and very, very little positive impact. You're not doing what you're doing, wanted to do. So you end up with two powerful opposing answers to the question, how are we gonna make our way in the world of 10 billion? These are the two paths that people have suggested that we might be special, we might be able to do this and to feed everybody, get water to everybody, um, get energy to everybody, avoid the worst impacts of climate change. So if you're a wizard, let's take a look at food, which is pretty uh, important. You know, and you know, how are we gonna feed everybody? How are we going to avoid hitting the edge of that Petri dish? And the answer is GMOs. You guys know what that is, right? 
Yeah, and I'm using that for a, as a sort of a, a stand-in for a whole bunch of, tech, uh, of technology, but particularly um, GMOs. And the kind of thing that they're really thinking about is shown here at the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines. And the International Rice Research Institute um, is this amazing place that was started in the early 1960s, and it was an attempt to copy what Borlaug had done for wheat. It was a direct attempt to copy this exact same procedure and do it for rice, and it was tremendously successful. Now 80% of the rice that's grown in Asia comes from, from, from these guys, and when I was growing up, you always heard, uh, you know, eat your food, there's starving people in Asia, and it's just simply not the case um, any, any, anymore. There's, obviously, there's hungry people in Asia, but the kind of massive um, want that you saw in the past is, and so this, you know, the prosperity of today's Asia has a huge, um, you know, is hugely due, is a huge portion of it is due to the International Rice Research Institute, and they're trying to do it again. And what the biggest effort there, uh, it's headquartered actually in Oxford, but this is where the bulk of the work is being done, is the C4 Rice Initiative. Um, any of you know what that is? I mean, who hasn't read my book? I mean, <laughs> oh good. You guys are kind of unnerving. Um, so this is this huge effort. It's the biggest effort in um, plant science ever. It's so important that um, the botanists involved don't like being called botanists. They want to be called plant scientists. Um, and they're trying to change the way that photosynthesis works in rice. And um, this is serious genetic modification. This is, you know, totally re-architecting the fundamental biological processes in the plant. This isn't, you know, just sticking a fish gene or in something. This is essentially creating a new species, a new, much more productive species of rice, and they're doing it um, in the way that you do it, you know, with uh, laboratory sample, samples, test, growing test plots. The important thing that I want to show you, though, is the test grounds, which is here in Australia. Um, and what this is, is an attempt to keep the machine of the Green Revolution going. This is an attempt to do what we're doing, but even more so, you know, to turn the dial up to 11. And for people who don't like what we have, this is the reason they don't like G GMOs, because it represents an attempt to keep a system going that they, that they don't like. Um, and so the goal is to keep this, but, but to make more. The profits answer is, that's going to cause lots of trouble. Why don't we try to do something different? And there, I think, would be exemplified in something like this. This is uh, Lloyd Nichols, and, um, and he's a sort of a stand-in for a number of farmers I visited. And this is his farm. And um, if you look at it, I'm hoping to convince you that it looks sort of different than the test facilities that you just saw. Um, and his, his farm is really quite extraordinary. He grows more than 1,000 different crop varieties. Uh, this is an actual an ancient, before computers, he started before computers, and this was how he kept track of where the plots were. It's still up in his barn, and I, I, I took some pictures uh, of it. Just an enormous number of different crops. 25 types of strawberries, 23 types of strawberries, 300 types of apples, 12 types of broccoli, on and on. It's just an incredible um, thing. And it's important to understand that he is not in any way anti-technological, but it's a very different kind of te technology. He has, for winter productions, he has these eight solar-powered greenhouses, he has four indoor sprouting centers. When I visited him, he was testing out drones to uh, monitor, his, um, monitor his crops, and uh, I should immediately tell you, I'm a journalist, I'm supposed to tell you the truth. I tried taking a picture of the drone, but I, I'm not a very good photographer, and all I got was a blur. So this is actually a picture from an advertisement. Um, <laughs> but it did look like this. <laughs> um, so, you know, this is a, a, a whole uh, high-tech 
um, cosmopolitan technological enterprise is very, very different from the kinds of things in what we call conventional agriculture of the, of the Green Revolution. And here is um, Lloyd over here, and he took me over to visit his neighbor, Henry, um, who is a you know, quote unquote conventional farmer. And then this, I thought this would help explain the difference in terms of agriculture for wizards and prophets. So Henry's farm, 1,300 acres, he's got corn and soy, so they're both, both GMOs, and he sort of ballparked it. Um, that he got uh, seven to eight million kilograms in yield every, every, every year. And there's tons and tons of high intensity chemicals. And there's nobody on his farm. It's just him and his son. His son works part time in a bank um, and the rest of the time um, there. And then the, there's an, this is the really important part. There's an incredible raft of different state, local and federal subsidies and programs and uh, I think that help keep him, him, him going. I mean, that there's a whole lot of social infrastructure, if you think of it that way, that helps um, farmers uh, today. Now over here is Lloyd, and he has, you know, his farmer is small, um, he's got no GMOs, not because he's opposed to GMOs, but because there's simply been no research into the vast, you know, that kind of research hasn't been done in the vast number of things that he grows. And he grows um, sort of more biomass per acre, but it's complicated because they're different and there's more water and so forth. The point is he grows a lot of food. It's not obvious which one grows the most. He has very little chemical input. Again, he's not organic. He reserves the right to do it, but he doesn't use it very much. Um, and he, the big difference here is look at the labor. He's got 11 full-time and 30 part-time employees. He's the biggest employer in his entire city, in his entire area. Um, and they have two, because it's so complicated, they have two with masters of science degrees. And he doesn't exist as far as these subsidy programs go. He's never had a dime of subsidies. This isn't because he's proud, it's because for one reason or another, the programs don't see him. You know, you have, to, you have to be on a certain list of crops to get the subsidies. You have to have certain types of equipment to get the subsidies, and none of that applies to, uh, applies to him. So we've put our thumb on the scale of um, this guy. And it's important whenever you hear people comparing, you know, sort of the productivity in the uh, of organic versus uh, conventional farms, that it's extremely difficult to, um, to compare them because they might as well be on different planets. One, they're growing different kinds of crops, they they're, um, have huge differences in the amount uh, of labor and huge differences in the amount of um, so social infrastructure. The farms are sort of, as they say, um, incommensurable. So again, difference, not technology versus no technology, different kinds of technology, it's not even big versus small, it's different um, kinds of big. And these are the two visions of the future. One is a networks of these small, you know, ultra diverse, interconnected farms with lots and lots of people working on them. One, the other is this high tech, um, you know, industrial monocultures with very little um, labor need and lots and lots of, um, lots and lots of equipment and the sides um, these two sides have been fighting for 40 years about which is, which is best. And you see these fights wherever you go. Um, um, this is just a joke, okay? Um, there, I, last time I gave a, a talk, there was a person in the audience who was very seriously into Star Trek and um, wanted to know whether I thought Kirk or Spock was the wizard and the prophet, <laughs> and I gave the wrong answer. Um, so this is just a joke, okay? <laughs> but 
you know, you see these things with water. Again, the same kinds of fights about how are we going to do with the future. Um, in California, you have these giant, you know, there's plans when they had these droughts, they built these giant desalination plants. There's plans for another 23 of them. And these huge mega projects where you're, this is an attempt to channel um, water from the last you know, major untapped river, uh, the Sacramento River Delta um, in the north and take it down um, along the uh, west side of the coastal um, hills in, um, to the south, or you know, using, um, not having lawns with homes xeriscaping. 70% of the average um, homeowner in um, California's um, water uses for their lawn. And so they would just ban the lawn and you say, then you wouldn't need this new water. And the same thing, agriculture uses something on the order of two thirds to 70% of the water in the whole state. Um, you could do things like have water retention ponds, you could have drip irrigation, you could save uh, a lot of this water. If you look at that um, channel they're building, something on the order of two thirds of the water that goes in from the Sacramento is going to be evaporated into the air by the time it gets to the farmers. And so there's a big fight between do we make new water, which is the size of wizards, do we use our technology to make new water, or do we use, as the prophets say, you know, adapt ourselves to the limits of the water that we, that we, that we have. Similarly, um, in energy, you had the, um, this fight going on since the, in more than 100 years now with the arrival of um, fossil fuels, this idea we can have massive amounts of, um, of new energy bringing, uh, bringing it up versus um, the people idea tapping the sun, um, which began already in the um, 1860s. Here's a guy in the 1880s um, actually printing books in the middle of Paris using solar power with this mirror thing that heats up a steam engine. Um, this inventor, um, the sort of pre predecessor to Thomas um, Edison called John Erickson wanted to create these networks of these solar uh, things where everybody would be sharing power back and forth and there wouldn't be these giant installations, there wouldn't be these huge um, facilities we now, but neighborhoods with more democratic control. These people fought it out um, for a decade and you still see it now with the utilities who are the um, inheritors of these giant oil things, the, the inheritors of wizards, fighting homeowners who want to build um, solar power installation. In Massachusetts, uh, where I'm from, for example, um, we have a solar array and um, we can, um, we can sell our power for roughly one half to, to the utility for roughly one half the cost the utility ha um, sells it to us, even though they're obviously the same electrons. And um, every time the utility has to use a computer to flip on the switch, we get charged a hundred bucks. And um, what this is, is you know, an essentially an attempt to discourage us from having um, solar power because it's the wizards are attempting to fight um, with the prophets. The wizards now, um, today's um, wizards, imagine these gigantic installations. This is uh, the one in Liverpool Bay, which I've seen. Uh, the towers are more than 600 feet tall. They're really um, amazing. Um, you know, the Mvampa in the Mojave Desert, and the idea is, of course, next generation nuclear. The prophets, on the other hand, want, want these networked installations. Over here in New Orleans is the um, first totally solar um, neighborhood in the United States. Um, Honeywell is trying to develop um, uh, rooftop wind. Um, and then the ultimate thing is these Dutch guys um, here who have envisioned these uh, things that are called power flowers where the entire landscape generates power and feeds it to these houses and sort of di the infrastructure kind of disappears and the neighborhoods share it and so forth. And so you have this fight between these um, ideas about how we're going to provide um, power. And this goes right on to the questions of climate change. Um, this is uh, the, when I think of climate change, this is the thing I vision. This is my friend Peter Menzel's house. 
Um, moments before the fire in Napa in, um, in 2017 came right up to it. Um, that, that there is his insufficiently cautious wife, Faith, um, who <laughs> I would not be caught dead doing this. Anyway, so this is, you know, this is the idea is that things dry out and, and cause this. What are we going to do? And naturally, prophets and wizards have different ideas. Um, the prophets take, the wizards rather, take their inspiration here. Um, this is a, a, um, the biggest volcanic um, explosion in, in recent years. It was um, well measured. Um, and it was uh, Mount Pinatubo in Luzon. It sent 20 million tons of sulfur dioxide up into the stratosphere. That combined with water to form, make dilute um, sulfuric acid which is a tiny glittering beads of it in the stratosphere. It reflected about 10% of the um, sun's rays back into um, space and dropped temperatures around the world for a couple of years by about a degree Fahrenheit. And the wizards say, we could do this ourselves. We have these uh, specialized vehicles, um, they're called planes, that could uh, d dilute this stuff. And we could put it up in the air ourselves. And we could you know, buy time for climate change by geoengineering the earth, by altering the climates of the earth, by using science and technology. Naturally, prophets think this is completely insane. This is like fighting fire by pouring gasoline on it and they're, from their point of view. And they point to things like this. This is a map of Africa, nor northern part of Africa. And they point out that 3,000 years ago, it looked like this. Um, that desertification can be reversed and has been reversed and that this would take enormous amounts of carbon off the air. And as proof of concept, they point out that in the southern border of um, the Sahara, this area called the Sahel, there's this terrible drought in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Lots and lots of the landscape look like this. This is Niger. And then local people like this guy here, Jacobo Soadogo, um, figured out how to replant it using very, very simple techniques, lines of stones, little pits, and they took that landscape that you saw now looks like this. Um, it's the largest reforestation project in the world. Um, it covers tens of millions of, um, of, of, of hectares, and they say, we could do much more of this. And you know, why, not, you know, why send stuff into the stratosphere when we have these natural carbon-eating machines? They're called trees. Why not plant them um, on, a, on a large scale? So this fight is going on, but how are we going to avoid the petri dish between the wizards and prophets is a live thing today. Now at this point, if any of you are biologists, I'm sure that you're rolling your eyes um, because the idea, both of these are presuming that we're special, that we're going to avoid the fate of every other species. And the whole lesson of Darwin is that, you know, the reason that uh, people got upset with Darwin is he said the same fundamental natural laws that apply to all the other creatures also apply to us. We don't have a special evolutionary path. We have the same kind of evolutionary path as everybody else. We're a species like everybody else, and the rules therefore should be we're an outbreak species and things are gonna end badly. So is there any reason to think that either the wizards or prophets are going to win and, and show us there? Is there any reason for hoping at all? And um, this is predicting the future, but this is the best answer I certainly can come up with. I think it's pretty convincing, um, but you guys may not. Um, so this is a map of the world in 1800. You notice it's quite different than, here is, than our map today. But it's different in way, profound ways that are not shown in this map at all. Here, here's one. In this map of the world, slavery is a legal and accepted part of society in every single country that you, that you see there. There is no place on earth where it's illegal including, of course, the United States. Something like one out of every three people on Earth 
exists in a state of unfree labor at, at, at this time. Yet, within a few, and this has been the case as far as we know for all of human history. The very first legal document that we have is the Code of Hammurabi. Um, and if you read it, about a third of the Code of Hammurabi is about the rules for owning slaves. You know, it's, 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 it's regulations for this um, institution of, of slavery. It was absolutely foundational. Yet, in the 19th century, a few years after this, a few act, um, decades of, um, of activism by small number of people succeeded in making so that today there is no country in the world in which slavery is legal and accepted. There certainly are slaves. The International Labor Organization estimates that there's something, I think the most current um, estimate is about 27 million. It's obviously far too many, it's horrible. But the point is, it's not one third of the world's population and it's all illegal. And this is, means to me that we can change things. You know, we can change things. Even more than this is in this world here in 1800, there is no place on it where women could own property, except for very few wealthy you know, women who are queens and, and, and so forth, like Daenerys Targaryen or something. I guess she owns her dragons. Um, there's no place where they can vote. There's no place where they can divorce an abusive husband. There's no place where they can go to school. There's no place where they can own a business. You know, this world exists with, um, with women being stepped on, denied um, e equality, and as far as we know, that's the way it's always been. Yet, a few activists, beginning in the late 19th century and continuing on to the 20th century, you know, endured ridicule and uh, so forth, and have dramatically changed things. Obviously, there's far, far to go in my, my view, but the point is that these foundational institutions, the subjection of women by men and slavery, which are the bedrock of human society, we changed them. And so it seems to me that if we can do that, it would just be really sad if we couldn't feed everybody, if we couldn't get water to everybody, if we couldn't get energy to everybody, and if we couldn't avoid the worst impacts of climate change. It's like we did the really hard part, and then we muffed the easy, easier part. And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Charles Seaman and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member inquiring about a statement in Mann's book, claiming that the average person's living stance in the 1800s was similar to that of someone living 100,000 years earlier. Yeah, there's a guy named Clark. He's an economist, economic historian. And um, it's, that's not quite right. It's slightly better than it was 100,000 years ago. Okay, <laughs> But the way he puts it is um, that in 1800, the average European, and Europe at that point was a wealthier part of the world, um, was about as wealthy as the average person in Mozambique today which is one of the poorer parts of the world. Now, the average person in Mozambique is slightly better off than the person was 100,000 years ago, but not, sadly, not a whole lot. And um, it's just absolutely striking how little increase in human well-being there was for so long 
I made a joke about Game of Thrones, and uh, the, the, the sad fact is some of the Game of Thrones stuff is sort of true. You know, the, those, those people were not well off, and that's the way that's the way it was. Lifespan not dramatically different in um, 1800 than it was a couple years longer, but not not dramatically um, different than their Pleistocene. Calories not dramatically different, probably maybe even a little worse. Um, you know, everything you can do is it. You could read. Some people could read, but not most people. So it, there's just an amazingly slow progress, and then it jacks up in the 19th and 20th centuries. This audience member notes that Charles Mann's own personal opinion is lacking in his book. Why is that? Well, that was sort of the goal. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the point is, I, I think what I can contribute is... Um, is to say some reporting to say this is what I think is going on having studied it. Um, but then when I say which one is good, I'm, that, that, I, my opinion is worth exactly the same as anyone else's. And um, so I, I just don't think my opinion is very interesting. The opinion that's really interesting is, is the young people. I mean, right? <laughs> they're they're going to decide. Um, and that that's the person um, who, who counts and what we can I feel like what I wanted for the book was I'm delighted um, that your your um, that your your group read it. What I was really hoping is that it would be used in in, in schools, um, and then that kids could use it to make up their own minds about what they wanted. This question is about how affluence affects birth rates around the world. Well, actually, it's not. It's partly that people have more money, but what it really is is women have more choices. Um, I mean, the way that um, the pop and this has been shown in society after society after society, when women have more choices, um, they choose to have fewer children because they want to do other things with their, their lives. And so if you are concerned about population, educating women and removing obstacles in, in, in their, their way is by far the best known form of, of reducing birth rates. And the great thing is it's one of the rare things in social policy that's like a total win um, because it's the right thing to do. Um, it's, uh, it increases economic productivity because all these women are doing stuff um, and contributing to the labor force and things, and it reduces um, uh, birth rates. So it's a, an amazingly uh, good piece. So that was the, the key to the population is, is that, just as you said for the first part, um, diseases lowered the death rate, particularly for little kids, you know. Um, and then women in a separate got um, in much of the world, um, you know, more opportunities, and you couple those things together, and you end up with, with smaller families. And that first, the first place that happened was France, where the revolution actually gave more rights to, to, to women. Um, and then it just spread throughout Europe, North America, Asia, and um, the last places, there's a strong correlation between places that still have high birth rates and uh, the status of women in those places. Our next question comes from an audience member wondering about man's thoughts on the tumultuous culture that surrounds birth control in America. The thing that we're talking about um, in the U.S., um, unfortunately, really boils down to 
poor women having access to um, the, the, these things. It's really, um, you know, middle class women can get contraception, don't need, you know, can pay for it if they need to, don't need it. Uh, for, for, and so it's really a kind of a, a war of the affluent on the poor in, in, in that way. Um, I personally think that's terrible. Um, as I said, my, the, the striking thing is though, um, the number of abortions just simply isn't large enough to really have, you know, and, and unwanted births in that way isn't really large enough to have a giant effect on, on population. Um, it's bad in the same way that a single, you know, it's a bad in a moral way if, if, you're, if, if, if you think that, that each, it's not the number of abortions, whether you're pro-abortion, it's that they exist at all, sort of like murders, you know, that each murder is still terrible if you, um, and so from the anti-abortion view, that's, that's how they view, and for the um, uh, pro-choice side, it's, you know, each woman's denial of choice is terrible, but it's a moral issue more than one that's gonna have strong demographic effects. Just because the numbers aren't, that they're swamped by other factors. Um, what's really keeping population, uh, you know, the, the birth rate in the United States is below replacement. Um, it's immigration that is, uh, the two factors that really control population are immigration and the fact that old people like me aren't dying soon enough. Um, so um, that's what's really controls demography. The, the, the things that you're talking about are really, really important, but they're important in a different, you know, mostly important in a different realm. This audience member asked why Mann decided to make William vote the prophet in his book. So I chose him because as best I can make out, and it's not just me, it's other historians, um, he is the guy who really put together the set of ideas that became the environmental movement. He is the origin of this. And so in both cases, I was trying to talk about the origin of things. In one case, it was a guy who I know this room isn't an ex is a counterexample, but most people don't know who he is. In the other case, nobody knows who, who, who he is. And I thought, actually, they're really important. And so that was why. And um, I, I, it's not so much that I think that um, more historians should be involved in, in public policy, but you do wish um, that more politicians were historically aware that things that they have proposed haven't worked in the past. And they, you know, we, we, sometimes it seems to me reading the, the newspaper, you want to say, wait a minute, didn't we do this once before and it didn't work? Yeah. This question is about the fundamental differences between wizards and prophets and why they don't often see eye to eye. My impression, um, and I, I don't think I could prove this, but I, I think this is right, um, is it has to do with different ideas about what the good life is. And we all have a set of things that we think we want to do and have. You know, freedom is important. Being part of a community of loved ones is important. All these things, but different people weigh them differently. And many, many of the wizards see the idea, their goal is to increase human freedom, increase human liberty, increase human prosperity. You know, it's a very, um, kind of an individualistic uh, thing. And there's a real strong part of the uh, America that's about that, right? Free opportunity and so forth. And your idea is, you know, remove people from the drudgery of farm work and let them go into the cities and, you know, and, and live out their dreams kind of, kind of thing. Um, the others are very important to be in part of a community. 
and uh, embedded in the community, and they see that as a model for us in nature, too. You know, one sees freedom being independent of nature, another one sees the real celebration being part of the same thing. And this is a really old fight in the United States. It goes down, you know, Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson had a very similar kind of fight where Jefferson envisioned people in these sort of independent communities um, as farmers and, uh, and, you know, parts, people all working together. Whereas Alexander Hamilton said, oh, that farming life is terrible. Everybody should be in the city where you can maximize your individual potential. And so you naturally, when faced with a problem, you like to have a solution that gets you closer to the place you wanted to go to anyway. This question is about man's opinions on agriculture conglomerates like Monsanto. Mons okay, Monsanto is an odd thing. I've, I've went and visited them actually a couple of times in the course of research for this. And um, it's often the case that companies, um, even large companies, really reflect the CEO. Um, it's strange how that is. And the guy who was the CEO for Monsanto until quite recently is a guy named Rob Fraley. And the instant I met him, I knew why Monsanto had the reputation it did. Um, he, there's a joke my wife says about me where, that I'm hard of listening. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, and uh, he was the most <laughs> hard of listening person I ever met. Um, now, what's interesting, though, is that there's a real divide, at least it seemed to me, between the older researchers and the younger researchers there. And the younger researchers there were much more open and chafing at the things that they would, uh, at the things that Fraley and so forth had, had asked them to do, which they saw as, um, in some ways, quite destructive. So Monsanto has now been bought by a German company, Bayer, and it now has completely different people in, in charge of it. And we'll have to see whether you know, that, that changes the culture there. I can tell you, though, there's a surprising number of, of younger re researchers who I met there who are hoping very much that that's the case, because they believe in the technology and its ability to, to help, but they don't see it really uh, useful, you know, sort of locking up patents on seeds and, you know, doing all those kinds of things. They, they, they see that as a, well, one of them put it nicely. He said, um, I see that as a failed business model, he said, and a failed human model. <laughs> the last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering about how the average wealth of individuals has changed over the course of history. It's really hard to compare currencies across times and so forth. So the, what economists have done, um, this is going to get really nerdy really quick. Okay, so sorry. <laughs> what the economists have done is tried to, um, and it also, distribution of wealth, really different from one society to another. And so what they've tried, to, these two, these are actually not in regular dollars, but in these sort of fictitious dollars called Geary Kamnis dollars. There's actually a footnote on the slide, but I didn't expect anybody to read it, um, but to be, just to keep me honest. Um, and what they try to do is to include the distributional effects so that you have something like a median um, there, and um, also to include the fact that, you know, as best they can, that well-being, you know, for a person in 14th century China and well-being for a person in 19th century Pennsylvania is going to be quite different. So there's been a, tr uh, that graph 
hides a tremendous amount of people cogitating about those very questions. And I think the answer is, can they, can they answer them all? No. But there, as far as I'm aware, there's no honest effort to do this that doesn't show a massive increase in, um, in income for average people um, you know, on a global level and uh, throughout the, la you know, in the 19th and 20th and 21st centuries. That wraps up our St. Paul Public Library Marion Park event with Charles C. Mann, and that'll wrap up our spring 2019 club book season. Make sure to check back with us in August as we announce our fall 2019 season lineup with more great authors. Podcasts of our previous discussions can be found on our website and iTunes, so if you have a minute, check them out. Over the past 11 seasons, we have had some incredible writers speak about their work, their process, and their journey. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>